0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. Our show returns, after a long time away, back to the flat, hot plain of Mesopotamia, where we begin our tale. We're not today looking at any one particular time or one particular place. Instead, we're going to be telling our story in a sort of generic realm, where it isn't so clear if the people around us are Sumerian, Akkadian, Amorite, or Kassite. It isn't so clear what city we're in, nor which river we're nearest to. This is because today, and in the next few episodes, we're going to look at matters of technology, engineering, manufacturing, and what a modern person might term science. Though this last concept was pretty much utterly foreign to the people of the very ancient world, at least as we understand it today. This is a very diffuse subject. It's extremely hard to say what exactly the industry of a certain city looked like in a certain year with any detail. But when collating sources from many different cities over many different centuries, we can get a kind of good sense of certain things. Of course, this comes with risks. Though the means of production didn't change in ancient Mesopotamia with anything like the rapidity that we're used to in modern times, there were in fact many changes in metals, production methods, designs, and so forth over the centuries of the Bronze Age. I'm going to mostly ignore this, though I do sort of want to put together an episode all about the changes over the course of the Bronze Age. Ah, because I think there's value in skipping over some of the details to get a broad sense of how things were produced in the ancient world. Think of this as a sort of how-it's-made Bronze Age edition. To remind us that we're in a somewhat fictionalized, genericized environment, instead of trying to tell you all this like some material science textbook might do it, instead we're going to look at production through the eyes of fictional generic people, intended to represent the sort of person who may have been involved in these sort of activities. I'm going to stress at the outset what you're about to hear is a work of fiction, devised by me, intended to illustrate what things may have looked like in the ancient world, not a direct telling of some true historical event. We begin our story in the city of Ur, sitting behind the eyes of a man named Sin Takalu, His name means, I trust in the moon god Sin, and he is middle-aged, head of a modest, proud family with his two-room house on the outskirts of the city. Around him, what he sees is the single dominant material which defines his era. He sees dirt. Below his feet is hard-packed dirt, kept solid and almost dust-free by the passage of many feet every day. Next to him is his house, made of mud brick and coated in mud plaster, just like all the houses of Ur. In the distance, he can see the tall palaces and ziggurats of Ur, which rise higher than anything else he's ever seen in his life, as he's never gone far enough from the Mesopotamian plain to witness anything like mountains or even high hills. Though he lives in what future people will designate as the Bronze Age... He lives primarily in an earthen world. Today, Sentikalu is walking under the already hot sun early one summer morning. Arriving at the bank of a canal, he gazes upon his inheritance, a large reed boat, nearly four meters long and nearly as wide, made of rope and reed woven together and proofed with bitumen that formed a hard, almost smooth exterior surface and was tied up to a stone along the canal. This had been his father's life work, and when combined with Sintakalu's natural business acumen, he'd managed to pull the family out of the swamps and into their more comfortable life on the outskirts of Ur. He boards the small boat, taking the long pole in his hand, and begins to push along the bottom of the canal. Once he's in the main waterway, he'll unfurl his one sail, about a meter and a half square of ragged cloth, to help push him along as well. He's headed south, though, so mostly it's the current taking him, to the swamps downstream of the city. In the stories told at the temple, there are some legends that seem to suggest that the city of Ur was once largely surrounded by marshes, But he knew that as long as he'd been alive, the swamps had only been to the south. The city itself was much more arid, like the rest of the Mesopotamian plain. Those priests must have no idea what they were talking about, since surely the whole coastline couldn't shift on its own. Only the gods could do such a thing as dry up the earth and shift the location of swamps, and they would have no reason to ever act like that. He doesn't ponder this for too long, since as he reaches the edge of the marshland, he sees his men coming through the reeds. Now, they're not literally his men. sintikalu does not own slaves, though his wife has asked for one or two to help around the house, even though she must surely know that the family is not quite wealthy enough to afford such an indulgence. At least not yet. He has hopes for the future. These men, though, they're not even his employees though Sintiqalu does know that larger, wealthier enterprises exist to do the same thing that he's doing, and these often have men bonded to them. And for those places, the difference between a slave and an employee is a really kind of fuzzy one. Although he thinks of them as his men, these are free men with whom he merely does business, and this is how he prefers it. They are reed harvesters, and he pays them little for their work, far less than they would need to survive if he was their only source of income. But they don't complain. The men prefer it this way as well. They're swamp people, and instead of living in a world of earth, they live in a world of reed. In place of mud brick houses, they live in reed houses. In place of clay pots, they weave reed baskets. And for the most part, They don't farm like civilized people do. Instead, they fish, and when they have enough fish for the day, they go out and harvest reeds. Now, they're not reed farmers, for no one cultivates or farms reeds. Instead, the men simply cut them down, and the goddess Nisaba, consort of Sin Sintakalu's own namesake, Sin, commands that the reeds rise back up again. The reeds are inexhaustible, covering the swamp as far as any man can travel in a uniform jungle of tall grass, and they get used in nearly every part of the swamp-dweller's life. But these reeds are not just useful for the swamp-dwellers, and Sintikalu is here to take bundles harvested yesterday up to the city. Today, six show up all of them distant cousins from back when Calu's family lived in the swamp. He has contacts with some 23 relatives, but each man only comes by when he wants to supplement his income. They're not dependent on Calu's payments the way of a slave or a bonded laborer might be. But today the six bring enough to fill his boat with long grass strands. Each blade of grass is three to four times taller than a man, And when they walk through the swamp, they're dwarfed by the plants they're pushing through. But it only takes a clay sickle, kept carefully out of the water to prevent damage, or among the wealthier swamp folk, a copper sickle with trace amounts of tin for hardening, to chop down a fistful. One reed gets pulled out of the bundle to serve as the string, tied at a few places along the bundle to keep the harvested reeds together, and that bundle is then carried to the agreed-on meeting point. Some such laborers are paid in grain, but Sintikalu pays in equivalent measures of wool, a commodity hard to find in the swamps unless one's willing to trade with the outside world. They exchange a massive pile of reed bundles, for a single measure of wool, much less than the shekel a day a laborer would expect. It'll be a long time before the swamp men collect enough material for their wives to assemble a new outfit, but this is expected, and most of them are expecting to trade the wool directly to other men in exchange for other items. There's no currency in the swamp any more than there is in the cities, but wool, like grain, spends as good as cash. These men are subsistence fishermen. Any work they have time to do harvesting reeds just makes things better for them. With his boat full of reeds, Sendakalu turns his sails and begins poling his boat upriver, sticking to the shallow parts of the river, selecting the forks and tributaries of the Euphrates with the same ease that a modern American navigates the interstate highway system. As the streams branch together and he approaches the south end of the city, more small, reed-loaded and reed-constructed boats join his, though Sint-Kalu notes proudly that none have a boat quite as fine as his own. And they reach the dock of Apil-Sin, whose name means heir of the moon god Sin, right before the sun passes its highest point in the sky. Sintikalu meets with Apil Sin and tells how many reed bundles he's got today. Apil Sin and Sintikalu are close. An original connection born from their shared patronage of the moon god has solidified over years of honest dealing. And Sintikalu receives very little above what he paid in the, sw- the Swamp Men, but with the massive amounts of reeds that he can move in his boat. He manages to live above his needs. Apilsin knows the art of marking amounts upon the clay. He can't write, but with the power he does have, Apilsin can manage multiple suppliers, just like Sintikalu every week, and also manage his sheep enterprise, which is why he pays in wool. Sintikalu loads his bundles onto Apilsin's much larger boat one that needs three men just to handle it in the river. It's early afternoon now. There is time for two more trips, though with only six people bringing reeds today, it's likely he only needs to make one more trip. After that, sintikalu still needs to sort out his payment into the wool that he'll pay his men on the next day and the wool that he needs to take to the market to purchase the grain and beer that his wife and children are at home waiting for but we will not follow Sin Takalu any further. His reeds travel upriver on Apilsin's boat, in a pile with the reeds from many other people. There are a hundred places these reeds could go, a hundred uses they could be put to, but today Apilsin's men are headed to Kish, where a few days' travel later an agent is waiting to meet them. The boatmen hand over a small three-inch square of clay as a receipt, the markings on which neither the boatman nor the agent are able to read, but this is a transaction which is mostly undertaken through trust and familiarity, as the boatmen are invited to take the waiting jars of Kishite beer in exchange for the reeds. Lama Ilam, whose name means he who stands before God, is in a field north of Kish digging mud from a brick field with a group of men. Lama Ilam is young and poor. His father left no inheritance, and he lives in a barracks with the other men of his labor gang. He hopes to someday be able to afford a wife and a small one-room unit in a larger complex, but looking at the older men in his work gang, he knows that a good marriage is not a guarantee and that he'll likely remain in this same work gang until he's too old to mix mud and carry water, at which point he'll likely die of poverty. A boy comes in shouting that the reed boat has arrived, and the foreman snaps at some of the men to go carry the reeds over. Only a portion of that boat's contents are coming here. Other reeds are going to other parts of town to be used in weaving, in fires, as styluses, or other sundry purposes. Lama Ilam had hoped to be chosen. Reeds, after all, use different muscles and would allow his tired body a bit of a break, but instead he has to wait until the reeds are carried to the worksite for his chance to switch tasks. Under the foreman's direction, Lama Ilam is handed one of the two dull copper knives, long since overdue for sharpening, and begins to cut the reeds into finger-length chunks, allowing the cut pieces to fall into a large woven reed basket. All these chopped-up reeds will form the core of the mud brick, though using reed is far from universal. In certain of the brick stacks in Lama Ilum's courtyard, the core is reinforced with nothing but leftover hulls and stems purchased at a pittance from the barley farmers, the unneeded parts of the barley plant after harvesting and winnowing is finished. In others, guarded by a fence, the bricks are infused with ghee, a sort of refined butter, honey made from pressing dates into a thick syrup, and cedar oil imported at great expense from the land of the cedars, a place that Lama Ilham has heard is overrun by wild beasts the size of houses and entered only by the bravest of merchants. Mixing fibers like reeds and grasses help to give the brick better structure, allowing the brick to last longer, while fluid additives like ghee and honey can actually help seal moisture out of a brick, as well as make it possibly nicer-smelling, but these are far more expensive. It isn't long before Lama Ilum has cut enough chaff to last the work gang the rest of the day, and he starts carrying over the massive baskets. Arrayed before him are hundreds of wooden molds, each with a hollow inside of the exact same size. A square of one sisu on each side, five ubanu deep, or about four palms on each side and five fingers deep. That's about 30 to 40 centimeters on the square and 8 to 10 centimeters deep. Two men have spent all day digging in the pit in the middle of the field, creating a sizable pile of loose dirt close by today's set of molds. Tomorrow, that'll be Lama Ilum in that pit, But he's thankful for work gangs of multiple men, for it allows men to be rotated around jobs from time to time, keeping the strain distributed to different parts of his exhausted body. He takes some of that loose dirt and fills up the first mold to about three fingers height. Actually, a bit more, since he has slightly smaller fingers than average. And then he sprinkles mixed chaff onto the top of the dirt. A young boy breaks over the pot of water taken from the canal at the edge of the field and pours it onto the mold, while Lama Ilum stirs it with his favorite brick-stirring stick. Once the mud is well mixed, he takes the edge of his hand and scrapes off the slight excess mud that sticks out over the top of the mold, leveling the brick, and then he moves from mold to mold quickly over the next few hours. In some fields, they instead make the mud all in one pit, then fill the molds from that. And when the weather's not so hot, it can take as long as two weeks for bricks to fully harden. The very best brickmakers can make 3,000 bricks in a single day, assuming he's used the day before for preparation, or maybe he has an assistant or two. Though no one in the work group is particularly trained or educated, the seven men of the work gang make 10,000 bricks this day, each doing one part of the process. This, by the way, appears to be entirely normal for the level of construction going on even in a modest city. The bricks are left to sit in the fields inside their molds. Tomorrow, these bricks will be left to sit hardening under the sun, while the work group will spend the day in another brick field west of town. The day after, a few of the men will go back to the original field and flip over every single mold by hand, carefully allowing the now mostly solid brick to slide out of the mold, then taking the molds and bringing them over to the next brick field. After another day of sitting, someone will come by and take the now completely solid bricks and stack them in the appropriate stockpile for use during the building season. Then this brick field will again be usable on the fourth day. Keeping the bricks stored in the brickyard under the summer sun will allow it to dry and harden further. But Lama Ilum doesn't think in these terms, and it's likely his overseer may not either. Though some professional master brickworkers were probably aware of this, bricks can be fired in a kiln, but only special purpose bricks, like those used around water or for highly decorative buildings, are worth the massive expense of the fuel required to do this. The brickmaking season runs for two months. Even with the festival days reducing the schedule, Lama Ilam's small work group will make hundreds of thousands of bricks over this period, what a modern calendar would call the months of about May to June, approximately speaking. This is the best time to make bricks, since the construction season, running from July to August, is about to start. Now, Not all construction will be done between June and August, but the builders at least want all the foundations finished before fall. Not only will laborers start to be demanded in the fields after that, but also the ground is at its firmest during the height of the summer, providing the most solid base on which to build. Some bricks will be made outside of that season, and some building will occur around the year, but Lama Ilam will move on to other seasonal work assignments, as will most unskilled general laborers like him. At the end of the week, after six days of working, Lama Ilum receives his weekly rations, a mix of barley, beer, oil, linen, and salt. The exact mix of goods he receives changes from season to season, based on whatever the noble paying his salary can make a profit off of but it pretty consistently comes out to a value of about four and a half shekels for six days' work. Lama Ilum does not know this, but like many cities, his city has a law against paying day laborers so little. If he didn't know it, it might not do him much good. He would need an understanding of the law and money to pay a scribe. If he really saved up, or if he took a loan, he could perhaps manage the time and cash needed to take a case to court, but ultimately, the man paying him, the boss above his overseer, is a distant cousin of the city's king, and there's no chance at all for the king's court to decide in favor of a laborer against a noble. Lama Ilum has heard tales of kings in ancient times or in distant cities who protected the poor against the powerful. But from his own experience, he expected that these were little more than stories. Ultimately, he made enough to survive and not enough to sustain a family, but he counted himself lucky to have any sort of income at all, and he knew plenty of people who struggled even more than he did to make it day to day. Anyway, it's now the height of summer, with the solstice approaching in a few weeks, and Lama Ilum has been transferred to a new working group. Work gangs are pretty flexible, and between changing assignments and people coming and going, odds are that you wouldn't work with the same people for more than a few months at a time, at least not in a large city like Kish. Still, Lama Ilum recognized most of the faces in his new group from various other jobs, and went straight to his new overseer with a request. For the last five years, he'd been hauling bricks from the brickyards to the construction sites during this season, and he wanted to get involved in the actual construction this time around. Now, this overseer liked Lama Ilam a bit more than the other one had, and there was a place open for a bricklayer's assistant, so he allowed it. Taking his place by a master bricklayer, alongside two more experienced assistants, Lama Ilum began asking questions while waiting for the first load of bricks to arrive. In response to these questions, the brickmaster explained that when he'd arrived at the worksite, there'd been nothing but a clearing, flattened out by laborers the week before. A few stakes had been driven into the ground to indicate the corners, with a string tied between them. On that string, cheap red paint marked off certain places where special elements were to be placed. Now, this was a house intended for a rather wealthy merchant, and he had a good number of decorations and windows set off, though the string only indicated that something was supposed to go there. The brickmaster had been given verbal instructions as to what went where, because, of course, the brickmaster couldn't read. The Brickmaster had spent the day before Lama Ilum's arrival placing two courses of the more expensive kiln-fired bricks on the bottom layers. If there was going to be any water damage, it was most likely to occur on the two rows closest to the earth. So this is what Lama Ilam saw before him. A brick outline, two layers deep, coated and mortared with a thin bitumen-reinforced plaster... Regular, sun-dried bricks arrived soon, and Lama Ilum quickly got into the rhythm of mortaring the top layer, laying a few bricks, then moving down the line. The work was tiring, but so was pretty much everything a labor-like Lama Ilum did in his life, and this was not so bad as some of the work he'd done. Soon he ran out of mortar in his pot, and went to the front of the construction site to refill his pot, There was a large cooking vessel here, sitting on a few bricks to keep it suspended above a fire pit. That fire pit's cool now, but it had been burning earlier. The mortar for the first few stages included bitumen, which is essentially crude oil which naturally deposits in oil lakes. This bitumen must be heated to at least 50 or 60 degrees Celsius in order to be viscous enough to mix with mud and chaff and worked, which makes for an unpleasant mix to handle. Thankfully, what was in the pot now was nothing but mud. Dirt, water, and chaff, the exact same ingredients as make up the bricks themselves, but not yet given a chance to dry out. On the ground around the mortar pot are a few more pots of water and a few more of dirt. Whoever gets the last mud out of the mortar pot is expected to fill it back up, and once all the pots of water and dirt are used up, the laborers will need to take a break from bricklaying and haul all the pots perhaps as much as one or two kilometers away, where they can fill them back up again with more water and dirt, then haul them back before continuing. This is going to happen a few times each day as huge amounts of mud are consumed in mortaring and later in plastering. There is a pile of crushed gypsum rock which, if included in the mortar, would strengthen the bond between the bricks and increase the durability of the final structure. However, the brickmasters pulled Lama Ilam aside on his first day and explained that they're not going to be using that gypsum until the final plaster layers since the nobleman paying for the project was unlikely to inspect the site, and the brickmaster would be keeping the money that would go towards the purchase of more gypsum for himself. Lama Ilum was promised a small share of this if he kept his mouth shut until the end of the project. As the walls begin to rise up, Lama Ilum was impressed by the scale of the structure that he's starting to put together. It's a rough rectangle, about twenty-five meters long and five meters wide. The main body containing five rooms, each is large or larger than Lama Ilam's whole living space, and there is a sixth room, about three meters by four meters, jutting out to the north, creating a small unroofed courtyard area. One wall of the structure is already completed, since this house is being constructed immediately to the east of another existing structure, making this part of a compound of upper-class residences. Very few of the walls are exactly at 90 degrees to each other, and often an opposite wall would be a few fingers longer or shorter than its counterpart because of this. But this was expected and normal. Only in fancy palaces and temples would accuracy be insisted upon, Normal people, even in wealthy houses, are content with good enough. As the walls rise higher, a new set of bricks arrive. Most are of the more uh, plain, sun-dried rectangles that Lama Ilum had helped make weeks earlier, but he notices that some are coming from a different direction, from the shop of a specialist, professional brickmaker. These bricks, rather than being uniform rectangular shapes, have one side that's rounded off, with ribs on the rounded side. Now, whether the brickmaker does this with molds, or if he takes normal bricks and carves them one by one, is something Lama Ilum doesn't know. The more experienced apprentices work with the brickmaster to place these special bricks in careful sequence at particular notches on the wall. When stacked one atop the other, it looked something like a rounded column, perhaps imitating the shape of a palm tree trunk or a particularly thick rope. And the effect was quite striking and almost naturalistic, a touch of organic roundness in a room full of straight edges. Beyond just the size, touches like this really reminded Lama Ilum that he was building the house of a wealthy family, one far beyond his station. After a few more days, the walls are taller than any of the men there. In a larger construction project, they would pause to construct scaffolding, but for a small group, it's much easier to rent some wooden ladders. These are very heavy. The reed that ties the rungs to the frame constantly needs to be reinforced, and they must be careful not to place too much pressure on the unfinished walls, lest they knock them over but with caution, they're able to finish the upper layers of the wall in plenty of time, and even get an afternoon off as they finish the wall before the roofing timbers arrive. The next morning, the whole crew goes to the docks, where massive timbers, five and a half meters long, have arrived. These are perhaps the most expensive part of an already very expensive house, but will provide critical structural integrity for the roof. You can't have a chief roof, after all, since not only do you not want it collapsing on you, but you also want it stable enough for the whole family to go up there and sleep outside on hot nights. It takes a good number of men on ladders just to lift these beams up to the roof, and if it had been a two-story house, they would have needed a crane constructed from wooden scaffolding to get the whole way up but it only takes one very busy day to get all the roof timbers in position. On subsequent days, as a roofer brings reeds and smaller sticks up to fill in the roof frame atop these hefty timbers, Lama Ilam is able to feel the comparative relief of working in the shade to finish the house. Though the walls and roof are finished, they're not yet done with the bricks. Wood is expensive, and even in a wealthy house, only certain prestigious furnishings are made of wood. In Lama Ilam's house, nothing but the door is made from wood. And it isn't even his door. He only rents a single room in a larger complex. And for him, it's just a thin linen sheet that hangs from a thin stick in the doorway to separate him from the families around him. For the rest of the furniture, the countertops, the slave beds, even the sink and bath, these are all constructed from brick identical to the brick used for the rest of the house. A bunch of bricks in a rectangle are a table, usually connected to one or two walls. A bit lower and broader, and you have a brick bed frame, on which some linen or woolen fabrics or maybe furs can be placed. The sink and bath this luxurious house has both are made from the expensive kiln-fired bricks plastered with bitumen and carefully, carefully, drains are drilled out. With the house mostly finished now, the crew moves from constructing new things to applying layers of plaster to everything, allowing the bricks to be sealed from the elements and to provide a base on which decorations can be placed. This entails emptying out the mortar which has been in the cookpot this whole time and filling it mostly with gypsum powder. Somewhere, in a quarry along the Euphrates River, workers even more wretched than Lama Ilum, likely slaved, had mined the soft rocks from the earth. They'd crushed it, they'd burned it, then crushed that into a fine powder, which was transported in baskets to building sites just like this one. When heated to normal cooking temperatures, it changes character and becomes a plaster the one that hardens rapidly, so one man has to stand by, tending the cooking pot, while others take portions for their own work. Not just the walls, but the floor will also be carefully plastered, with a bit thicker coat, and once the whole house is finished, a second, very thin layer of plaster, with much less mud content and higher gypsum content, will be applied to make the house sparkling white for the new owner. Of course, the house won't stay white for long. A painter has been hired, and the ingredients for his pigments are already being delivered to paint the walls and floors in yellows, reds, browns, and occasionally, where the expense can be afforded, blues and greens. The patterns of the painter will not stand the test of time the way that Lama Ilum's mud bricks will, but a wealthy man's house would surely have been as colorful as he could manage. But Lama Ilum is an unskilled laborer, and these final decorations, the painting and then the covering of the floors and walls with pottery and fabrics for decoration, comfort, and utility, are jobs for more comfortable craftsmen than he. But as he gets sent home to work for, look for his next work gang job, he has the satisfaction of knowing that even if it was hard work for very little pay, what he's built will stand for a very long time. Nothing lasts forever, of course, but even if the buildings were to be abandoned right now, it would likely stand for centuries if unmolested. It would become unattractive quite quickly, as the aesthetic parts of the building are the least enduring. Even though it rains very little in Mesopotamia, comparable to the very driest parts of the American western deserts, it does rain occasionally, and each time it does, the mud bricks become a bit less brick and a bit more mud. It's the roof beams that are usually the point of failure, as the decaying bricks struggle to support the weight of the heavy wood after a time, and once one wall collapses, the rest of the structure tends to fall apart more rapidly, leaving only the base layers of bricks as a testament to what once stood there. That is, of course, if the house is left to decay naturally. While the city prospers, every building should expect a replastering every 10 to 20 years, and the major public structures like walls and temples will desperately need whole walls rebricked after 50 to 100 years of neglect. But typically, houses and cities are not left to fall apart on their own. In good times, the desperate and clever criminal can dig through the brick wall of a house while making very little noise, sometimes managing to break in and steal from a living room while the master of the house is asleep one room away, leaving no evidence but a massive hole in the wall for sunlight to stream in through the next morning. Most destructive for a house, though, is the ever-present threat of fire, The same qualities that make mud brick great for construction make them equally good for destruction. With homes often filled with flammables like fabric, plant oil, and animal fats, a fire that catches inside the home can fill the house quickly. But remember that inside each brick is more plant matter, as well as tiny air pockets. The air bubbles help insulate the house against the Mesopotamian sun, and the plant matter binds the bricks and keeps the house standing longer. But as the brick is heated up, the plant matter inside can catch and burn as well, increasing the heat of the brick and causing the heat to pass through the wall. And remember that usually on the other side of the wall is someone else's house, with just as much fabric, oil, and fats waiting eagerly to be ignited by a glowing hot wall. If this is an accidental fire, an entire housing complex can be consumed in a matter of hours. If this is an intentional fire, lit during a war or a sack, a whole city can burn to exhaustion in less than a day. In the worst case scenario, the people who live in these earthen cities find that they're actually living in an oven and a burning housing complex or city likely reached temperatures of six to 700 degrees Celsius and sustained that heat for a few hours before running out of things to burn. A city or neighborhood reaching such heat so quickly would be nothing short of hellish. And so, leaving you on that cheerful note, this has been an overview of construction in ancient Mesopotamia. The people I've looked at have been fictional, and though I did mention particular places, the data for this episode has been drawn from all over Bronze Age Mesopotamia, and over a hundred cities and a thousand years, things likely would have varied from time to time and place to place. Still, I'm having fun reading up on this aspect of daily life, and so the next few episodes will continue in this same general format. Next time, however, we'll leave the big city behind and focus on humanity's most classic beverage, beer. So join us next time for a look at farm life, the agricultural cycle, and an introduction to domestic industry in Bronze Age Mesopotamia. Thank you for listening.